Noble Dairy Queen's new summer blizzard menu is back and it is stacked. Dive right into the summer celebration with their new peanut butter cookie dough party blizzard. You can sink your red spoon into their world famous DQ soft serve filled with delicious chunks of chocolate chip cookie dough, swirls of creamy peanut butter topping and peanut brittle crunch with sprinkles. If the peanut buttery flavor isn't your jam, their fresh take on cobbler a la mode certainly will. Say hello to the Picnic Peach Cobbler Blizzard. You can also let your taste buds crumble with the ultimate cookie blizzard that features Oreo, Chips Ahoy, and Nutter Butter pieces. Dairy Queen knows everyone loves a good comeback, and fan-favorite blizzard flavors Frosted Animal Cookie, Brownie Batter, and Cotton Candy have made their triumphant return. Summer Blizzard flavors are now available at your Noble Dairy Queen stores with locations in Kankakee, Bourbonnet, Moments, and Mantino. Happy tastes good. It was once considered one of the largest mental health facilities in the country. The largest mental hospital in Illinois. One of the largest in the world. Offering groundbreaking treatments for mental illnesses. There are no straitjackets at all. No one is locked up. We turn into a special therapy room. There are rows of large tubs here. And it was right here in our own backyard. I'm Jake Lamore, and on this episode of Kankakee Podcast, we're uncovering the history of Mantino State Hospital with the Kankakee County Museum. The beginning of the Mantino State Hospital started in 1927. The Illinois legislature had voted to build a new institution for the mentally ill. Jory Walters, research coordinator of the Kankakee County Museum, says Mantino was chosen to be the site for the new hospital for a few different reasons. Mantino was chosen because um, Chicago, Cook County, had an overflow of patients. They could not accommodate in, in the Chicago area. So they said, hmm, well, we don't want another one in our area, so where can we go? So, 1929, uh, Governor Small was in office, so they looked down a little bit, a little bit outside of the Chicago area and said, Mentino, we have a lot of land here, we have a lot of farmland. So this was the location uh, that bought up a a couple of farms in the area, um, but that's why it was chosen um, as proximity. Now, it was still not a lot of vehicles back then and not the superhighway interstate that we have today. So it still was a little bit hard to get to, took a little bit of time to get down here. Um, and by train, um, you can go by the ICRR in North Central, but it was still six miles from the Mantino Depot. Right. So you still had a little bit of time to get to uh, to and from the facility. So that was why Mantino was chosen for its location right outside. And I think I said this before that um, Kiki County is the only county in the whole state that has two mental hospitals. Jack Clacy of the Kankakee County Museum says the state purchased 1,000 acres of farmland in Mantino for the new hospital. It's a good-sized purchase, a thousand acres, mm-hmm. is what was purchased. And uh, as Jory noted, there was severe, severe overcrowding in the Chicago area state hospital. There's one at Elgin and one called Chicago Psychiatric. There may have been another, but Kankakee was also uh, becoming extremely overcrowded. So. They decided it was time to find another one, and the idea that since it was going to relieve overcrowding in the Cook County hospitals and Kankakee, that it should be somewhere south of the city, preferably in an area where land prices were cheaper than trying to buy a thousand acres in Cook County or in the city. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's also the fact that uh, it was the governor's home county. And the governor always took care of his home county. <laughs> uh, and, Whether it was, uh, it was legally or illegally. Yes. <laughs> I think it was actually legal. I don't think he owned any land there. But The governor we are referring to, of course, is Len Small, who was born and raised in Kankakee. 
By August of 1928, the 55th General Assembly appropriated $1 million for acquiring the land and constructing buildings for the new mental hospital. Small actually helped pick out that 1,000 acres of property that was owned by two different farming families at the time, the Barnards and the Sunnysacks. When Small was a boy, he spent a lot of time at the Barnard farm and thought it would be the perfect location since it was just two miles east of Mantino with access to Route 50 and the Illinois Central Railroad. About four months later, in December of 1928, construction had begun. The architects for the project were William J. Lindstrom and Charles H. Hammond. The architectural design they had chosen for the hospital was Georgian. The first buildings to go up were the administration building, along with eight two-story cottages for a cost of close to $1.2 million. Contract for building the administration building and 100 patient cottages uh, was approved uh, or signed in December 1928. And uh, the actual cornerstone laying was November 21, 1929 for that building. And there were also some of the cottages underway. Uh, The 100 patient cottages were eight two-story cottages and the rest were all one-story. To hold at least uh, 5,000 beds. That was the plan. Uh, Capacity of 10,000 beds. Eventually, uh, the acreage without overcrowding. Ralph T. Hinton, former superintendent of the Ilgen State Hospital, became the first superintendent of the Mantino State Hospital. And by 1930, the first group of patients had arrived. First patients were arrived there uh, by train on mm-hmm. December 27, 1930. Uh, and they were met by 15 what? staff members. I don't know if that was all that. the staff members at that time or or not. But Last uh, old, old locomotive heads for Texas. This is Mantino <laughs> State Hospital on there. So they brought people by train. They had their own train with mm-hmm. its with their name on mm-hmm. it? Wow. Yep. <laughs> I know they had a bus with their name on it. Mm-hmm. They, they, they stopped. Oh, sure. It was called the Bluebird, Bluebird. because it was painted blue. Okay. <laughs> but after they stopped bringing people to now i assume uh i haven't seen any specific thing except what jory was showing that there was a a a spur off the illinois central that came to the campus the original patients were were met at the Mm -hmm. the mantino station okay uh but later on and obviously you also had a need to uh move supplies in and out and things like that so i would imagine that's where the uh, little railroad uh Engine and cars were yes. Switch so, track. Yeah. so for those of you living in modern day with us, that would be if you're driving on Route 50 in Mantino, mm-hmm. uh, or just outside of Mantino, and there's that railroad crossing, but there's just uh, the signal lights up ahead. Mm-hmm. There's no actual like gates that mm-hmm. come down. Uh, that railroad that goes through Route 50 uh, heads uh, east, and that's where it was originally mm-hmm. headed for was. The, the mm-hmm. state hospital. So, mm-hmm. but today it's very rare, obviously, that you see a train crossing <laughs> that rail line. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen very often yeah. these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably uh, supplying things at Diversitech. Yes, uh, obviously. Where they needed a mm-hmm. rail type connection. Yep, yep. Um, and at least one of the buildings was completed and ready for occupancy before December 27, 1930, when the first 100 patients, all men, arrived from Kinkakee State Hospital. As the Great Depression of the 1930s began, the Mantino State Hospital was able to provide jobs for many in the area. The hospital was considered to be a city in itself. It had its own power plant, sewage treatment plant, fire department, farms for growing food, laundry facility, restaurants, and a modern utility system that ran through tunnels in the ground connecting to all the buildings. Some of those tunnels are still there to this day underneath the sidewalks. Now that we've laid the groundwork for the construction of the hospital, what kind of treatments were performed on the mentally ill there? What was life like for a patient at Mantino State Hospital? They are processed and they are given a full physical 
and full mental evaluation and then decided by the doctors um, who worked there what type of um, yeah, they refer to what a diagnostic, diagnostic. Unit, I think, singer building mm-hmm. to determine what their specific needs are, and also I must say some people were there for a lifetime, or as long as, as um, the facility was open, and others were discharged if they deemed that they got better. So it, it isn't as though every single person was you know was there for forever right yes so there there were new technologies uh, of the day in the the field of psychiatry that they tried and worked with um with different people hydrotherapy was one of them um a lot of technical a lot of medical technical things that they used medicines um, used now, of course, a lot more, but that was kind of just beginning. Um, you had instances, of course, that for quite a long time, but they eventually phased out of things like electroshock therapy mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> physical lobotomy, where they actually operated on the brain. Uh, yeah. But that, I think, was pretty much phased out in favor of chemical and other treatments by the 40s or so. Uh, they also... The hospital, as did Kankakee in the same period, began instituting things like occupational therapy, physical therapy, recreational activities, and also uh, work therapy, I guess mm-hmm. you would call it. Uh, the, As was the case at Kankakee, there was a, far, a large farm that was operated that pres- provided a good portion of the provisions for the the hospital and mm-hmm. the patients were, were people working on the farms themselves. Mantino State Hospital prided themselves on using the latest cutting-edge treatments available to treat the mentally ill. According to MantinoStateHospital.com, electroshock therapy began at the hospital in 1936. Hydrotherapy, insulin, and carbon dioxide therapies were also administered. Here's a clip from a radio program called It's Your Life from September 1949, where a patient and her doctor were interviewed at Mantino State Hospital while she received carbon dioxide treatment. Listener discretion is advised. You might find the following audio a bit uncomfortable to listen to. Children are naturally drawn to art and the creative process. For them, it can be a form of expression as they explore the materials, gain confidence, and feel a sense of competency as they create something based on their own ideas and efforts. That's why Little Me's studio in Bourbonnet created the Big Kids Art Lab for ages 5 to 12. Little Me's studio crafted this safe space for your big kid to slow down, be in the moment, and be comfortable making messes while trying something new. Big Kids Art Lab meets every Thursday from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. at Little Me Studio across the street from Olivet Nazarene University in Bourbonnet. Studies indicate that art making has so many positive effects for the brain, body, mind, and heart. Enroll in one class at littlemestudio.com or sign up for the entire session and save. littlemestudio.com to sign up for Big Kids Art Lab. Make sure you follow Little Me Studio on Facebook and Instagram. Now we go to a room where they're going to give a new type of treatment, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide gas is breathed by the patients. What happens? You'll watch it happen. The doctor says about this patient. Does not talk much. Seems in general just to sit still. Now she's responding exceedingly well to carbon dioxide. You can talk to her. Do you remember how you felt before you began the carbon dioxide treatment? Well, I believe it probably, no doubt, was a little different impression than I have right now. Well, do you remember that impression? I don't mean about the treatments. I mean, how did you yourself react to things? Did you talk to the other girls? Well, I believe um, that I'm afraid I... I couldn't, I couldn't exactly say, I mean... 
You don't remember? I mean, I, I uh, don't really remember to, to uh, tell you the truth. She was, she was slowed, felt guilty, and in general looked as depressed as she does now. Now, I think I can show you. All right. You ready for the treatment? Too much. Very slowly taking her shoes off. There goes one. There goes the other. She's lying down. The doctor turned on the machine and just put the mask over her face. And she's clasping her hands, breathing rather deeply. Wiggling her toes just a little bit. Chest is going up and down as she takes the carbon dioxide. The doctor explained earlier that by this time she is unconscious, feels nothing. Her hands are uh, in a slight state of tremor. They're moving just slightly. Continues the slight tremors for for a while. This deep breathing is that an attempt to get oxygen? No. Natural reaction? No. She has enough oxygen, but carbon dioxide acts as a respiratory stimulant. Oh, I see. You, you know, you use it in artificial respirators to make a person start breathing. She has more oxygen now than when she breathes normally. How do you feel, kid? Okay. Come on, sit down and talk to us. Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, my head's a little dizzy, but outside of that, I'm all right. I'm huh. fine. <laughs> Thank you. Now, still a little dizzy. Uh, <laughs> oh. well, let's wait till you recover a little bit. Okay. <laughs> May I put my shoes sure. on? Thank you. She leans over the edge of the bed and slips her feet into her shoes very quickly. The rest? The rest of my body is all right. Just my head. Just your head? <laughs> yes, sir. <coughs> Thank you. Do you feel happy now? Uh, yes, a lot happy. Before I was rather sad and, and uh, depressed. You see, she has been on insulin treatment. We took her off carbon dioxide and put her on insulin since the carbon dioxide indicated that there was a good basic result to be gotten. And on insulin, she has been recovering gradually and steadily so that uh, this treatment that she has had now has been to demonstrate to you a change of mood mm -hmm. that does occur with the carbon dioxide. And because the carbon dioxide has lifted the veil, the doctor can see that she has a rich, full personality underneath that sick, sad state of mind. Outside of the many different treatment options, Mantino State Hospital also provided patients with several recreational activities. You could uh, participate in a concert band uh, or dance orchestra. Um, there was ballroom dancing. Um, there was roller skating. <laughs> you could do that. You uh, offered a couple of times a week. There were card parties. Um, so there, there were... Um, religious services offered, of course. Um, uh, the Recreation Department Hospital sponsored and furnished equipment and uniforms for two employees' baseball teams, um, one to two games a week outside teams in the hospital ball field, and all cottages were encouraged to take patients to the games. So they did um, try to, to have the patients interact um, as much as possible. Um, golf, too. Yeah, they did a golf they course had a, later on. They mm -hmm. had a nine-hole golf course, mm -hmm. which became the Mantino Golf of Course. course. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is now out of existence. As far as we know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they did um, all kinds of, of activities that they felt were would be beneficial to the patients um, along with psychological psychiatry needs. 
that I think State Hospital, Kinky State Hospital did not quite these specific activities, but they try to do that with with patients as well. Sure. Now, is the next thing on the timeline probably the typhoid right. uh, epidemic that in 1939. happened? 1939. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in 1939, uh, the patient count at Mantino was 5,385 patients, which was twice as large as the patient count at Kankakee. Mm -hmm. So it didn't um, take long for them to get oh, that no. many people. I mean, That's right. It just ramped up very rapidly. Man. Eventually, there were more than 8,000 mm -hmm. at the height mm -hmm. in the 1950s. Which is way more than what uh, Kankakee State mm -hmm. Hospital was. Oh, that yeah. was like five. At uh, maximum was five, about, about, less than 5,000 or about 5,000. Yeah. Wow. Man. But the typhoid epidemic uh, occurred in August of 1939. Uh, more than 400 people were taken ill by the typhoid bacillus or whatever it is. Uh, and approximately more than 50 people died. Most of those were patients. There were a few members of the staff. And there were also several, and I don't remember the number, three, I think, possibly uh, workmen from Mantino uh, who were working on the, the, the state hospital campus with the, the water system, which, of course, was the culprit. Uh, the hospital's wells were contaminated, and so it was a, a, a big mess for quite a long time, for the better part of several months before they were able to re, uh, you know, rein in the problem by different water sources and so forth and get rid of the contamination. The typhoid uh, epidemic launched a career that eventually led to the state, <laughs> to the governorship. A uh, young lawyer named Samuel Shapiro uh, was the state's attorney of Kankakee County in 1939, and he impaneled a grand jury to investigate the mm -hmm situation, the, the causes, and uh, what could be done uh, to, you know, place the proper blame for this. As it turned out, there's several state and hospital officials that were charged with malfeasance in office, but only one of them, uh, A.L. Bowen, who was the director of uh, the Illinois Department of Public Welfare, which oversees all the state hospitals, was found guilty of malfeasance in office, uh, he was removed from his job and fined $1,000. $1,000, <laughs> yeah, that's the rest, it? The rest of the charges were dropped. Apparently, they decided they had found their victim. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Uh, but Shapiro's career was launched by that case. He spent 14 years of his life as a state representative from Kankakee County uh, and two terms as lieutenant governor of Illinois under Otto Kerner. Uh, in 1968, he became the 34th governor of Illinois and the second from Kankakee County. Uh, when Otto Kerner re, re, uh, resigned to take a federal judgeship, uh, unfortunately, uh, Governor Shapiro's bid for a, a term on his own, the next term, didn't work out. He, didn't, he, was, he was not elected. Yeah. But uh, he became and was known all through his political life as an advocate of mental health treatment, mental health uh, law, introduced various laws, uh, various uh, measures in the state legislature that led to some reforms and so forth. And he was known really as the, the mental health governor. And that was acknowledged in a, in a way when they changed the name of Kankakee State Hospital to Spiro Developmental Center in what, 1976. Over the years, many people have made surprising discoveries of loved ones who were once patients at Mantino State Hospital. One story in particular that was submitted to us was that of a woman whose admittance into the Mantino State Hospital led to the kidnapping of her youngest daughter. So I'm Kirsten Rust. Uh, though my family is not originally from this area, we do have a connection with Mantino State Hospital. My great-grandmother was a patient there. Where were your great-grandparents from? 
She and my great-grandfather lived on the south side of Chicago. They were both immigrants. She immigrated from Czechoslovakia, and he was from Hungary. What was her name? Mary. Uh, her married name was Nagy. Her maiden name was Michko. And what was your great-grandmother admitted for? Her daughter was born in 1946, and she went to the hospital shortly after she was born um, for what was postpartum depression, but they didn't know that at the time. How long was she at the hospital? So she was there for, I believe, about two years. Um, my grandfather was a factory worker. Uh, my my grandmother had several siblings, but they were all older. This was my great-grandmother's last child when she had been admitted. What happened to her kids while she was in the hospital? Susan is the youngest. Um, when she was born, her brother, who was the next youngest, was probably about three or four. So I'm guessing he was placed in preschool somewhere. They were Catholic. So I'm sure there was like a Catholic preschool that he was attending. And then my grandma, I think, is the next oldest, and she would have been in school. So I'm thinking that all of those older kids were all in school. Um, I think the oldest at the time was probably in their teens. So probably after school, they were in charge of watching all the other kids while my great-grandfather was working. They placed um, my great-grandmother's last child that she had just had into foster care while she was at the hospital. Um, And during that time, I guess the foster mother became very... uh, close with the little one that was placed with her, my my aunt. Um, and when my great-grandmother came back from the hospital, when they went to take the my aunt back, um, the woman had disappeared with her. And uh, my aunt was nowhere to be found. And you knew about this story growing up? I think I was probably in high school the first time I heard about this story from my grandma about how she had a, a little baby sister who was kidnapped and she had never seen her again. <laughs> um, so it just, I don't even know how that conversation came up, um, but I remember being like, how am I just now finding out about this in high school? Like, I didn't know that my this happened to my grandma. She never really spoke a whole lot about um, her situation growing up. I knew that it wasn't... Um, the best childhood. I knew that they didn't have a whole lot of money. They were immigrants, so they were pretty secluded and isolated in their community, I think. Did your great-grandparents ever find the woman who kidnapped your great-aunt? They had hired a private investigator even at the time to fi- try and find um, this her, her baby sister. Um, her baby sister's name was Susan, um, and... I guess for several years they were paying this person to try and find her and they were never able to find her. Fast forward many, many years, I have always been interested in my ancestry. And so I have have an Ancestry.com account um, and I decided, I don't even know what year it was, it was probably in like the 2016 or something, to send in my DNA to see like who's out there. Um, I was not doing this intentionally to find my great aunt Um, It just so happened in 2018, I got a message uh, through Ancestry from a woman. um, Her name was Jackie. And she said, uh, I see that we're connected. Um, I see in your, because you can look at the person's tree um, on Ancestry. I see the name Nagy, and that sounds really familiar to me, but I don't know anything about my parents. So I was like weird (laughs) and like I thought maybe this might be her but I didn't want to get my grandma's hopes up and I wasn't sure so I really played it slow in my response and I was like um is Nagy your maiden like I was asking her lots of questions because this is just like a stranger reaching out you know um so I asked a lot of questions and we went back and forth and I said you know my grandma Grace um that Nagy was her maiden name she has many siblings um, and then I went through, like, all of the siblings down the line, giving her the names and, like, their the dates that they were born. And I said, and actually her baby sister, Susan, uh, was born in 1946. And um, 
she was actually kidnapped about age two, and they've never seen her again. And so it just kind of went from there. So how did you confirm that Jackie was, in fact, your long-lost great-aunt Susan? I had my grandma actually submit her DNA through Ancestry, and that's how we for sure confirmed the match. In talking with Jackie, um, she said that her she never knew um, that her parents weren't her real parents. She had submitted her DNA shortly after the death of her mother. Um, on her mother's deathbed, her mother said, Jackie, I have something that I need to tell you. And she didn't get to tell her before she passed. Did you and your family get to meet Jackie after that? In late 2018, we organized like a, a meet and greet. So my great-grandmother had already passed by this time. My grandmother... Um, Her brother, her younger brother, and then her older sister were all able to meet Susan for the first time. I just can't imagine what it would be like to be, for postpartum depression, to be sent away from your family. Um, And then you come back and your daughter is just gone. In 1941, staff began to diminish as the United States entered World War II. It's also believed at this time that the U.S. military began breeding malaria in patients at Mantino State Hospital without their knowledge to try to find a cure for the disease. This is according to MantinoStateHospital.com. Patient population at this time had climbed to about 5,700 people, and by 1954? By 1954, which was the high point of... Their population, there were 8,185 patients at Mantino, and it was the fourth largest state hospital uh, for mental health in the United States. Going after the typhoid epidemic then, um, what comes after that? It reached its peak, and then it just started to decline. From, From what I understand, there's kind of a shift in the way that the field of psychiatry was going at the time. And also with the introduction of more um, drugs that took care of um, conditions that were not presented before, the the introduction of, of, um, of drugs. So that, I think, was also a turning point. And I, I just get the, the feeling also that this field, they just had a, a different view of how to treat these people compared to when the state hospitals began and to where they went, 60s, 70s, and eventually 85 is, is when this one closed. Um, there seems to be a lot of change in this particular field. Yes. Um, that's my interpretation of of reading through materials Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that the state, um, it it was a, a big expense. In 1951 alone, the budget for Mantino State Hospital was over $11 million. That doesn't even include all the other mental health hospitals the state ran at the time. There also were a number of scandals of various kinds, especially in the 60s of over treatment, over mm-hmm. conditions at the hospital. Mm-hmm. I remember the uh, a priest who was the chaplain there was very vocal in uh, complaining about the unbridled sexuality <laughs> of the uh, that was condoned apparently by administrators. And so uh, I don't know whatever became of that. I know that the Chicago Tribune was running a or in the Sun-Times running stories on that. One of the most well-known patients to be admitted at Mantino State Hospital was Jeannie Polarski. According to the Chicago Tribune, Jeannie was admitted in 1944 at the age of 25 after she and her parents disagreed about where she should live. When Jeannie arrived for her evaluation at Mantino State Hospital, a doctor made note that she was neat, clean, tidy, quiet but friendly, cooperative, and showed no signs of active pathology. She seemed fairly normal. To make a long story short, after all the treatments and lobotomies she underwent at Mantino State Hospital, 
She was never the same and died a ward of the state in 1998. Jeannie's story is one of the most controversial in the state hospital's history. We've established what life was like for patients at Mantino State Hospital, but what was it like for employees? Carol Greibeck was hired as an activity therapist around 1971 and worked there until about 1973 or 74. She was 18 years old at the time and had just graduated from high school. I felt really bad for these people. They were quite young. They had major issues, which I don't know what those all are. You know, I don't want to start naming like things like, I don't know if they're schizophrenic or whatever, but um, it stood out in my mind, the young people that had severe mental disorders, really. And I I wanted to just help them as best I could. And uh, I guess what stood out, too, was um, the fact that there were actually criminals that could be, that were there, that were not in jail or prison, whatever it is. I'm not really sure um, how that all works, but those were the people that mainly really communicated the best because there really wasn't a whole lot wrong with them as far as their speaking. Then one man, I remember it was, uh, um, I think his name was Richard, but he would like his job was to like mop the commissary. And I'm sure he got paid something for that, but it was always something to talk about. Um, But I think he was in there for something pretty major. And it kind of always amazed me. But I used to think, to be honest with you, that, um, and this was years ago, right, that there were probably a lot of people outside of this place that were a lot worse than some of the people that I met in the place. I really always felt that. I was just going to ask, since you did activities, what were some of those activities that you did with the residents? The the activities were mainly um, simple things like maybe checkers or um, simple games that they had there. Um, Nothing really big, you know, as far as that. They just kind of called it activity therapist, but, you know, it wasn't like major stuff. Even taking them for a walk was considered an activity or, you know, taking them outside and sitting on some of those benches and just, you know, you know, kind of just looking after them, being their um, person. Carol also worked in the commissary. People got to go to the commissary. That was a big deal. You got to go to the commissary. People either gave them money or they had these stipends for the residents, and they would walk there and they would really enjoy seeing other people at the commissary. Some people were a little social and they sat with people and I they might have had like friends, but then many just got um, some kind of snack they had all kinds of things from hamburgers to, um, I don't know if anybody ever remembers, there was this diet cola called Tab Pop. <laughs> so then they had that. And um, so after so long, I started working in the commissary, but not in the food division at all. It was more like helping the residents, like making sure they could open the door and get to a table, maybe help them get into the line, help them with whatever kind of money they had or however that was all worked out. I enjoyed that a lot because um, people really enjoyed that commissary. So I got to talk to people, meet, meet some of the residents. And she disclosed it wasn't uncommon for patients to escape. People did try to kind of run away, like sometimes they would escape. And I can't say everybody was ever found, but they would try to, they would go and they would run and they would get on the main road. And then they would, um, you would see them sometimes um, trying to escape. And I don't know what really the protocol was for that. Of course, they can't just let people go, but they did. And they would go through sometimes the fields, but mainly on the roads or streets. They were, and um, 
you know, try to get a ride or something. Now we will hear from Jennifer Schnell, who was born and raised in Mantino, started working as an LPN nurse at the hospital in 1981. What do you remember about working at the hospital? Just remember, you know, gosh, seeing all these people that weren't mentally together, or I was in a unit called the carrier unit, which was the ones that were more sicker. They were, they needed a little bit more help. They had, you know, areas where they were incontinent. Sometimes they needed to be help fed. They were like all, they would all come up to the nurse's station. I worked the midnight shift because I went to school. So that was even more interesting because when I was working the midnight shift, a lot of the state employees had been there for years. So I'm a newbie. So they would sleep through the night and I'd be up all night taking care of everybody. <laughs> Jeez, that's. Oh, yeah. Well, they, well, you know, that's kind of the state, you know, the midnight shift was a little laid back. I mean, if anyone's going to say no one slept through the night, they're wrong because I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Some yeah. of them did and some of them didn't. Right. I mean, there was good, there was good workers. There was bad workers, you know, and you know that anywhere you go. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, but at the state, I got to see that firsthand because I thought, well, how can they sleep and get paid? And I'm. <laughs> up and you know that kind of thing so that was one of the worst things i think i got to learn in the you know the working field when i was first out of high school yeah but but the people there though the 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 workers there knew their patients knew everything about them um knew that they slept whatever they were like in tune to them we had this one patient that would come about 5 30 in the morning every morning in the carrier unit and scream really loud and have a urinal full of urine and throw it up over the nurse's station Every morning, routinely, you just come running and screaming and then throwing that urine right over the nurse's station. Ugh. So whenever we heard that scream in the morning, we'd make sure all of our papers were out of the nurse's station. Everything was gone so that when we had to clean up the urine, it wasn't saturated in our paperwork. <laughs> Did anyone escape when you were there? That Do you remember any significant stories? Well, not any significant. We had a couple that escaped onto the grounds and we always found them. I mean, we'd find them laying in the woods back up behind something. We'd always find them. That's why I said at nighttime, I would kind of roam with the security guards. And, you know, they're, they're, yeah, people would always escape out. I mean, obviously that's going to happen. But we used to, I never knew that anyone when I was there, we never did not find. We always found them. A couple things I want to kind of point out. Um, some people sometimes ask me about the murals oh. mm-hmm. uh, that were... In the administration building. Oops. The murals were in the administration building? Mm-hmm. Okay. I believe the, the Mantino Historical Society owns those. Yes, probably. They've been removed in their story because we borrowed them at the Kankakee mm-hmm. County Museum mm-hmm. for an exhibit at one point, or at least several of them. Okay. Um, and then one other thing I want to mention, I came across an article on the first lady um, to run the a psychiatric ward, Mrs. Ella Curry, who took the position as superintendent at the hospital um, in about 1975. woman. So that's her picture. Okay. So she was head of that for a while. And then um, they also had uh, escapees. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't, and they also had their own um, newspaper. My grandfather uh, printed that sometimes oh, yes. for them. <laughs> we had My Grandpa Franklin Weber, yeah. Mantino News, yes. State mm-hmm. Hospital News. In 1975, Mantino State Hospital changed its name to Mantino Mental Health Center with a population that had dwindled down to less than 3,000 patients. By November of 1983, Governor Thompson announced the mental health center would close its doors for good by the end of 1985. Eventually, the whole philosophy of mental health treatment in the state moved from residential, large-scale treatment to commute, what they called community-based, which were smaller homes, uh, private nursing homes and things of that sort. And so by 1985, Mantino was closed as a state hospital uh, and mostly sat empty for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
um, when it was in a uh, veteran's home, uh, my grandfather was one of the first uh, veterans to be there. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. It wasn't too mm-hmm. long that the veteran's home took over some, a uh, good chunk of the buildings, right? It was 19... 1986. Yeah. So, uh, According to the notes that I found, 122 acres at the north end of the campus were turned over to the state of Illinois for the Illinois Veterans Home. Uh, its patient population is about 300 people, I think. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a much higher uh, <clears throat> ratio of, of staff to patients than there were in the mental health mm-hmm. hospital days. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I know I've heard nothing but really good uh, mm-hmm. reports on the quality of the treatment there. My daughter-in-law's father uh, was a veteran and was able to... Uh, spend several years there in his and I know that the, his family was just said it was just so really well run and uh, you know the staff was very caring and so forth so I guess that's a real positive issue yeah and they have uh, a lot of good volunteers uh, yes. that spend time out there too I know of yes and they did with the state hospital too after the places closed there have been you can do a Google search on this. There's been countless ghost hunters oh, yeah. that have yeah. come through the vacant buildings. And really, there's not very many left anymore because most of them are privately owned by mm-hmm. someone and they're not just open mm-hmm. for anyone to walk in. Yeah. Um, but there's been so many rumors and things that the place is haunted. And even there's a lot of homes. Uh, there's a subdivision mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. Uh, on the old grounds as well. Uh, there's even people uh, that I spoke to that live in the, those houses. And these are, you know, houses that were built in the 2000s or mm-hmm. the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And they apparently tell me they encounter ghosts out there in their homes. So, you know, mm-hmm. again, take that with a grain of salt or take it what, what I've you heard will. that too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there have been uh, a lot of additional uses for that land. I think a lot of Diversitech, of course, the uh, uh, industrial park. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite a few companies. I know there's what a large mustard maker, Plockman's. Plockman's. Is, is that part of Diversitech? I think it's part of yeah. it, or at least part yeah. of the old state hospital. Yeah. Uh, the I don't know if the laundry is still functioning. At one time, they were a I huge don't... commercial laundry that uh, commercial laundry from Chicago had taken over and was using it. Yeah, they were using one of the one or two of the buildings out there. Yeah. And I don't know if there's still an operation out there anymore, but that's a that's another good point to make out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the administration building that's uh, the first building you see when you if you go through the main entrance. Um, Homestar bought that, and that was their headquarters for right. many Bank, years. Yeah, yeah. Homestar Bank, which then became Midland, and then Midland uh, has sold it now. And there is going to be. <laughs> I have a. Kind of a press release, a vintage purse museum, not for profit, that will be in the um, in that building, the old administration the, building, mm-hmm, old bank building, um, and it will be non profit. They will be um, hopefully visitors from everywhere, and not only the only other purse museum is in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, and then um, already the Purse Collector Society has 230 members. Um, keeping the exhibits ever-changing is top priority. Um, they plan to also uh, have World War II exhibits, History of the 80s comic book company with original artwork, antique toy exhibits, and rotating exhibits on fashion designers from the past. Um, and they'll be booking traveling Exhibits such as Interaction in Action, Barbie, I Love Lucy, Moldorama, and others. Artists from the Merchant Street Art Gallery will be hired to do murals and decorate how displays. Um, and they're connected with charity One Heart, which places mentally challenged adults in the job. Uh, progress and restoration of this historic building is going well. Using local contractors. Okay. Um, well, I'm excited to see. To be what... open in the spring and appreciate the support. Uh, so that is um, what is going to be in there coming up soon. Yeah. Well, that's exciting because mm-hmm. 
I used to, when in, Homestar had their headquarters out there, I used to make deliveries for when I worked for Weber Printing because we did printing for Homestar. I'd have to make deliveries out there of their envelopes and things like that. And so I got to go in the administration building once in a while, and that was always a special treat because you walk in and there's this huge staircase. And it it's one of those where you go up and then you can go on either mm-hmm. there's another there's two sets of staircase one on the right and one on the left that you can go up to you know the next mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. i forget how many mm-hmm. floors that building is it might be three floors like four or four stories. it might be four actually yeah. anyway it's just this grand staircase with uh brass railings and everything and marble everywhere it's just beautiful. And we yeah. have uh, a pretty good selection of photographs of uh, the construction. Um, I think the, the cornerstone lane uh, and also the buildings. Um, so anybody who would like to look at photographs are welcome to um, come to the museum, contact us. I'd be happy to show those. I don't think I have as many as I did on Kinky State Hospital, but I do know we have a, a good array of, of photographs. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then this is only a portion of what we have <laughs> uh, for the State Hospital um, right. information. Yeah, this <laughs> is just kind of a summary. Jack and Jory, thank you so much again. And uh, if you want to learn more about the Kankakee County Museum, I encourage you, or we all encourage you, of course, to visit either campus, uh, the one on 8th Avenue in Kankakee or the uh, French Heritage Museum that's uh, closer to downtown, not that's mm-hmm. right off of uh, Indiana Avenue. Um, and uh, KankakeeCountyMuseum.com. Also, Facebook and Instagram is at Kankakee County Museum. And... Uh, Thank you once again to you both. Thank you. Thank you once again for having us. We always enjoy being here. Love having you here. (laughs) That concludes this special episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to the Mantino Historical Society, Kankakee County Museum, Carol Greibeck, Jennifer Schnell, NYC Municipal Archives, WNYC, and Kirsten Rust for helping us with the research for this episode. Thank you to our sponsors, Coldwell Banker Realtor, Allison Asher, Chicago Dough Company, Noble Dairy Queen, Taco John's, Edward Jones Financial Advisor, Adam Elroy, Frank's Appliance Center and Sleep Source, King Music, Main Street Pharmacy, and D. Westfall Jewelers. Kankakee Podcast is owned and produced by the fine team at Pathfinder. You can learn more at yourpathfinder.io. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and follow us on social media at Kankakee Podcast. You can also drop me an email anytime at jake at yourpathfinder.io. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. This river can-